I'm not pulling my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for the Drive to Work Coronavirus Edition. Okay, I'm having lots of fun talking with people about Magic's past. So today I have Ethan Fleischer. We're going to talk all about Amon Ket. Hey, Ethan. Hi, how's it going, Mark? It's going good. Uh, Amon Ket. So, so this was a set where you and I co-led the set. So I sort of led the first half of, of design. It's back when it was design development. Uh, and I, the, you did the second half, so... That's right. And we were both on it for the whole time. Just we sort of handed the reins yeah, halfway through. Switched, switched who was responsible for making decisions and uh, and maintaining the file and writing documents. And stuff. Okay. So what is your memory of Aminket? When you think back to Aminket, what, what first jumps to mind? Oh, I just remember this. Uh, it's a lot of visual memories, right? I feel mm-hmm. like uh, ancient Egypt which Amonkhet was based on, is a, is a very sort of visually splendiferous uh, setting. And because a lot of what we know about it is from, from ancient artifacts and ancient buildings. And so a lot of the illustrations that we, uh, that we made pop to mind for Amonkhet, the windblown sand and the pyramids and the costumes. Well, I remember very early on, um, Jeremy Jarvis was the creative director at the time, and he was like, no dusty Egypt. It's, it's got to be bright, sunny Egypt. And like, there's a lot of tropes just because so much of Egypt is through archaeology and stuff that. Right. Because yeah. there's kind of there's there are two Egypts, right? There's Egypt as it was, it, you know, in ancient times. And then there is the Egypt of like 1920s British archaeologists <laughs> discovering Egyptian uh, artifacts and. and Jeremy was very much interested in the first thing and not at all interested in the second thing. And so we really focused in on uh, Egypt as a as a living, vibrant culture rather than a collection of dusty artifacts. Yeah, I remember what, one of the things we did early on. So this was part of what we call the Bola Saga, which was a three-year Bola story that ended up with War of the Spark. Um, and so one of the things I know that came really, really early on was the idea that this was like Bol- one of Bolas's like Home, I'm not home world. He's from Dominaria, but like he was up to something. You know, that th- this is a world in which it reflected his influence. Right. We didn't think that there was quite enough meat on the bone uh, of just ancient Egypt to base two entire sets around that, and so we wanted what's the what's the other angle here that will you know make this uniquely magic the gathering, and we thought. Nicobolas's influence here. What if there was an entire society that he had dominated here, and what would that look like? Yeah, I know. Pretty early on, we uh, one of the things that I, I, I think this came out of exploratory is the idea of that there was a dissonance, and that the people of the world weren't unhappy, but that the 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 gatewatch show up obviously in the story, and like. To them, everything seems horribly wrong, but the people who live there, they're absolutely fine with it, and that it's it's this weird society that, like, it runs the way it runs, and they're very happy with it, even though from an outside perspective, it seems weird. Right. It was a it was supposed to be a dystopia where everybody was sort of artificially happy with the status quo in a way that was creepy. And to me, that was one of the most satisfying things about Amonkhet was that idea of creative dissonance where like horrible things would be happening but they would be named something very nice which you often see in totalitarian states right democracy square in the middle of a oppressive dictatorship things like that yeah and so one of the big things mechanically was 
what we wanted was we want the mechanics to feel as mean as possible and the creator to feel nice, right? So that, that it had this play dissonance. Like, the set didn't play like it was a nice place, but all the names and the art was saying it was a nice place. Right, and so... I was very excited when I found a reprint for Amonkhet when we were working on it. Uh, and it was a card from, I believe it was from Onslaught, called Unburden. And <laughs> it's a discard spell. It makes you discard two cards. Uh, makes the player discard two cards and had cycling. And, like, cycling, we put cycling in the set. And, like, the idea that Unburden, that sounds good, right? I want to Unburden. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> we Unburden you of your mind right like the the picture has a, a minotaur being uh you know having brain surgery put on him or something and he's kind of looking a little dumb so so the way we thought about the set when we were designing it was we did kind of divide it in two we said there's the egypt part of the set that's all the top mm -hmm. down you know ancient egypt and then there's kind of the bolus part of the set of the sort of you know, the the meanness of, of sort of like, you know, feeling like a, a world that Bolas had influenced. Right. In fact, we made a Venn diagram with like a Bolas circle and an Egypt circle and like all the items that were sort of, uh, you know, one or the other or things that felt like they overlapped. Okay. So why don't I just for, as a structural thing, I was going to, why don't we start with the Egypt part first and talk about sort of capturing Egypt. So what, what part of Egypt would you like to start with? Um... I feel like mummies is a great place to start, right? Sure. That's a that's a a monster that is uniquely Egyptian themed. Now the idea of mummies that roam around and fight people obviously it belongs much more to that nineteen twenties British explorer trope space, you know, the the universal monster movies and such. But um, we we you know we we went that far. We're like, yes, we're gonna have we're gonna have mummies walking around. Uh, and so we made a whole keyword mechanic around that, which was embalm, that uh, would allow you to make a token copy of a creature from your graveyard. So you could pay some mana, exile the creature from your graveyard to make a token that's a copy of it, except it's a white zombie uh, in addition to its other colors, uh, its other types. Um, and the, the reason that we wanted to do that instead of like unearth was because we got to show the before and after like here before this person is alive afterwards. Now they have been wrapped in bandages and they're a mummy now. So it was, it was a fun way. We made bespoke tokens for each of the embalmed cards, uh, which at the time felt like a big ask. I was like, Oh man, can we get like 12 new token arts or whatever? Is that even possible? And, uh, and, but Jeremy loved the idea. He was the art director for the for the set, and uh, he was very excited about the idea and uh, was happy to devote the extra resources uh, at yeah. a time when, when we didn't have as many resources as we do now. Yeah, I just want to point this out. It's important for the so the audience to understand when we have to make a magic set. Like, there are real-world restrictions, you know. You have so many pieces of art, and like if, even for tokens, normally you only have so much token art. So what we were asking for was more than we were allotted. So that required us yep. to go get permission and say, hey, here's a cool idea. Can we get this extra resource? And we were told yes, but that that's not always the case. you know. Right. Um, sometimes it's just a matter of budgetary constraint. Uh, and sometimes it's just a matter of like bandwidth. Like, are there enough people to write the art descriptions and enough artists with time available who can illustrate the cards? There's not a not an infinite supply of anything in the world. So, yeah. 
But yeah, unfortunately, we... it was they were able to to do that, and I was I was very happy with how the embalm cards turned out. Yeah, the tokens were really cool too. And, and the other thing we did, uh, or, uh, we did the creative team did, was they concepted all of them, so each one had a different shape to it. So yes. like, so like there was no repeats. Like everyone right, was a cool. You wrap something, yeah. someone in bandages. They look a lot like <laughs> someone else in bandages. So they definitely found ways to mix it up. Or like this one's a cat, and this one is an angel with big wings. Right, uh, things like that. So, uh, real quickly, since we're talking about zombies and you mentioned cats. So, zombies was our one main tribal thing in the set. Normally, in sets that aren't tribal-focused, we tend to have, like, one tribal thing. Players like tribals. And um, zombies, one of the cool things about zombies was the story made sense for white zombies. Because in the story, the zombies or the, the, the zombies in the city are servants. You know, they... Right, they they're the sanctified dead. They elaborate ri religious rituals had been performed upon them and they were holy in some sense, right? Right. And then also there were, there were black zombies that were outside the city that were like kind of wild, uh, you know, m more vicious kind of zombies. Yeah. They were, they were evil monsters that hungered for human flesh. But one of the cool things, and this is one of the things we always think about is we had white and black zombies with some zombie tribal. And then, Andestrad was in standard with us, and they had blue and black zombies. So, you know, it's sort of like we could add to zombies, but here's a new thing. It's white zombies. We hadn't done white zombies before. Um, and it's not easy. Like, certain concepts are hard to find. Like, zombies as a white concept is weird. Like, we found one, and it worked, but, you know, there's not a lot of worlds where white zombies make a lot of sense. Yeah, and, we, you know, we didn't set out to say, is there some way to do white zombies? It was more like, what, what should mummies be? Well... Why not white zombies? Makes sense here. Uh, oh, and I was going to say, the one other thing we did do, uh, tribally, because you mentioned it, is we did have a little cat theme we ran through the set, which was another Egyptian thing. Um, right, because the ancient Egyptians worshipped cats. So <laughs> um, it might have been the first cat tribal reward that I we've ever printed in Magic. I think it was. If it wasn't the only one, it, it was certainly one of very few when, when we uh, we made that cat lord. And it was the most powerful. If, if one existed, it was nowhere as powerful as that one. But that was yeah. made. We, we made it to go, okay, cat lovers, we go yeah, build a cat like, deck. The players loved it. And, like, <laughs> since then, we've had a, a cat-themed commander deck. We've had, like, cat-themed jumpstart boosters. Like, yep. cats have taken off in a big way. And yep. I'm, I'm glad that... The, we were able to embrace people's love of cats because lots of people like cats, not just ancient Egyptians, but people right. alive today who like to buy magic cards. But one of the things Amonkhet added to the world of magic is a focus on cats, which was, yep. I mean, cats existed before then, obviously, but more of a tribal focus. Okay, what else did we do? What, what other Egyptian things did we do? Well, a lot of uh, things that, we, that people associate with Egypt are artifacts, um, you know, costumes and... Uh, tools and you know canopic jars, the pyramids, the Sphinx statue. So we, there were quite a lot of artifacts in Amenket, actually, even though it wasn't an artifact-themed set. Um, so one uh, one type of artifact that we made a few of were these sort of work-in-progress uh, artifacts, where they would start out partially built and you would have to uh, add brick counters to them various right. ways uh, to complete them. And this was kind of inspired by the Civilization video games 
where you uh, you would build great monuments and they would they would give you some special power if uh, if you managed to complete them before the other players complete their version of it. So uh, so we had a few cards like that, and uh, we also had the monuments. Each uh, each color was kind of headed up by a god. There was a pantheon of five gods, one for each color. Uh, and then there were various other cards associated with each of the gods, uh, including this big monument that was like the temple to that god. And uh, each one would was a legendary artifact that did something cool when you cast a creature spell of the appropriate color. Yeah, actually, each color had a little bit of a theme that ran through it. With they had the god, and then they had there was a bunch of different components that all sort of tied together. Um, right, there was like the god and the uh, trial and the cartouche and yeah. the monument. And if if you put all four of those things together in a deck, they would kind of have a strategic direction to them. Yeah, and so this was the second set that had god. I mean, we had had gods in Theros, obviously. Um, and I know one of the challenges, speaking of Egyptian things, one of the challenges was, okay, how do you not do, ancient Egypt, you got to do gods. Um, right. And, you know, how, how, how do we capture gods in a way? Because we didn't have devotion. Like, how do we capture gods in a way that felt like gods, but also felt like Egypt? Yeah, we didn't want to do devotion again, and we didn't want to do enchantment creatures again. We wanted to make these gods feel pretty different from the ones in Theros. Um, and... Ultimately, we decided devotion wasn't appropriate. These gods were, were here whether people worshipped them or not. Um, and we had to find a different mechanic to represent their immortality rather than just indestructibility. We wanted to, we didn't want to kind of paint ourselves into a corner because we knew eventually we were going to, to go to Kaldheim and do Norse mythology. And so we wanted to make sure that there were like some elements in common between the Amonkhet gods and the Theros gods, but we didn't want so many elements in common that, that players would think it was weird when we did something a little farther afield when we went to Kaldheim. So uh, it, it was important to mix it up a little bit. Uh, so each each god had more of a Thing that it cared about rather than uh, each caring about devotion. Okay, also, you mentioned the cartouches. Want to talk about the cartouches? Right. Um, the cartouches were special auras. They even had a, a special subtype because the these were represented the sort of medals that would be awarded when, uh, when somebody completed one of the five trials that they had to, uh, had to go through in order to uh, go into the, the happy afterlife that was supposedly awaiting them. Um, so each of the trials, I believe, would... One of the cartouches, is that right? Yeah. No, well, whenever a cartouche entered the battlefield, uh, you would... Each of the trials had a, uh, an ability that triggered when it entered the battlefield. And then uh, whenever you played a cartouche, you could return the trial from the battlefield to your hand. So you could play it again and get that enter the battlefield trigger again. Right. A, bi a big part, just so people understand the story, was there were five trials. That, like, the, the, the whole idea behind this world, the city, was that you went through these five trials and that along the way you often died. And that if you made it all the way through, then you would be like gloriously killed. And and get a great reward in in the you know the hereafter, 
Secretly behind the scenes, Bolas is building a zombie army, so... Right. Um. <laughs> In fact, this was just a giant... This entire city was a machine designed to sort people out into not very good warriors and good warriors. And the good warriors would be turned into members of his eternal army that he used to invade Ravnica later in the story. But there, so each color, each color had a, a god associated with it. And there was a trial and there mm-hmm. was, I don't, I don't know if you remember that each color had a word associated. I can't remember all this cause it's so long ago. Um, but there was like, right, a, so there was, um, Right, there was the trial of solidarity for white, the trial of knowledge for blue, the trial of ambition for black, the trial of zeal for red, and the trial of strength for green. Though they weren't gone through in that order. No, no, I think it was, you started with white, then I think you did green, then blue, then black, then red, is that right? I know you ended in red. I remember red was last. Yeah, red was last, and I think white was first. Yeah. Um... But yeah, each one of them, they're just different kind of tasks. Like, um, and the red one was a fight that you fought at the end. And then if you were the last one standing, then uh, Bowles killed you or one of the gods killed you. Like, Hazret, the, oh, Hazret, the red god, god killed, killed you. Yeah. Personally. Right. Um, the sort of final Egyptian element that we put in, uh, aside from, you know, visual design stuff, which was considerable, but from a game. And, and top down. There's lots of one of top um, downs. We had, we had deserts. Um, so there was a card from Arabian Nights called Desert that had the subtype Desert, uh, and that was the only card with the subtype Desert for most of Magic's history, but we decided to make several new deserts in Amonkhet and in, uh, Hour of Devastation, the second set of the block, and some cards that cared about deserts. Okay, you said that was the last Egyptian thing. What do you consider Aftermath? Oh, aftermath. Is that Egyptian or is that more bolus? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, af- aftermath. I think is more of a feels. It doesn't feel especially flavorful as far as. I don't know. Okay, I mean, maybe that's more on the bolus side. So, okay, we talked to Egypt. So let's let's get to the bolus side. So. um... Okay, so why don't we start by talking about minus one, minus one counters. Right. So we try... Hmm. I am losing my connection. Well, I, I, I will start. Um, so one of the things we knew early on is we wanted okay. it to be... No, you're not. Um, we wanted it to have a very harsh feel to it. And one of the ways we had known from when we had been on... Um, in Shadowmore was that minus one, minus one counters feel very mean. You know, it definitely has a very sort of odd feel to it. Um, and so that was one of the ways that we thought we could, we could add this, this mean quality, if you will. Um, and there's, there's a lot of controversy at the time. I've talked about this on my blog, on my, uh, podcast and not podcast on my, uh, articles a little bit. And that minus one, minus one counters are kind of hard to, to, to use, um, normally when you, um, you, like when you use plus one, plus one counters, you're building things up, you're making things stronger. You're sort of, things are growing in strength, but when you use minus right, one, minus one counters, it, it helps the game to advance, right? It helps the game to advance, right? Ultimately, helps... the goal of a magic game is for one of the players to be reduced to zero life points. Right. And, um, the problem we run into 
uh, in a minus one minus one world is it it sort of makes things go away rather than get bigger. Like it doesn't make the game end; it slows the game down. Right. Um, but we were very. I mean, I, at least I was very. Uh, I really wanted to use minus one minus one counters. I th- I thought like if we're going to capture the sense of this being a harsh world, that minus one minus one did a really good job of feeling harsh. Yeah, I agree. It made it feel like a dangerous place with a hostile environment. Um, okay, so what else? Uh, let's talk the bull side of things. Um, oh, let's talk about Exert. Right. Exert was something that felt um, a little more unique to the specifics of this setting. Like, there were all of these, um, essentially, warrior athletes who were trying to outdo each other in these various trials and exert kind of represented uh, them striving for excellence. Uh, So exert was an ability that allowed you to uh, tap a creature and make it so that it didn't untap during its uh, controller's next untap step. So it was kind of double tapping it where it took two untap steps for it to untap. and that would give you some some special ability. They were they were different from card to card. Uh, and those happened. Uh, I guess that happened when they attacked, right? So if mm-hmm. they could, when they attacked, you could do something. Uh, and then if you did, they wouldn't untap. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty cool mechanic. I thought it was. Uh, it's a neat resource. Like it's a, one of the things we're always looking for is what else? What other costs could you pay? And this was kind of like, oh, well, maybe the cost you pay is untapping. That's a different kind of cost. Yeah, and it was it was a, a mechanic that encouraged aggressive play. And a lot of the rest of the set, you know, cycling and aftermath of kind of reward slower play where, uh, where you want the game to drag out. And we wanted a mechanic that, uh, for something for aggressive decks. As it turned out, the fervor cards were a little stronger than uh, in the real world than they were in our playtests, just due to the large number of players being able to optimize uh, how the set was drafted. And, and it turned out that the fervor cards were a little too strong and kind of pushed out some of those slower strategies uh, once the draft format matured. Okay, so you mentioned Aftermath. What do you, what do you remember the origin of Aftermath? Uh, I remember... We were excited about cards that had two different card types on them because uh, there was the Delirium mechanic and Shadows over Innistrad. Right. This is just intolerable. Uh, Sorry about that. No, no, no. I'm having, having little audio issues here, but uh, the right. And so we wanted we wanted to have split cards that could have two types on them. That was that was how we. Uh, originally came to Aftermath was like, we want we want instant on one side and sorcery on the other. And eventually we came to the idea of like, what if we kind of fused split cards and flashback where you could get one effect uh, the first time you cast the spell from your hand and a different effect when you cast it from the graveyard. Yeah, we and we tried a lot of visual ways to represent that. Um... Uh, like I, the one we finally ended up with was they were oriented differently. So like in your graveyard, you could sort of orient them so you could see them. Right. Yeah. The idea was that you could kind of uh, arrange them in such a way that you could easily see the aftermath cards sticking out and see what they were. Uh, 
I'm not, I'm not sure that it was entirely a satisfactory, uh, implementation overall, but the cards are pretty fun to play with. Yeah. The mechanically, the cards are a lot of fun. I, the, the, the frame layout, pro- probably there's other executions we could have done. Uh, we tried a lot of the time. Yeah, we, we did try a lot of things and, uh, you know, ultimately it, they, they ended up looking a little weird. We did end up with some interesting art pieces, though, because uh, one of the card halves had like a super widescreen, uh, uh, very, very wide aspect ratio to the art, which allowed us to get some unusual illustrations in there. Okay, so the one other mechanic that I don't think we've talked about yet is cycling. We, we mentioned in passing. Do you remember yeah. where cycling, like why, why cycling? Why, why did cycling? Why did cycling end up this set? Cycling was something that Eric Lauer, who was in charge of the the sort of late design, uh, you know, we call set design now, uh, we called it development at the time. He was very keen for us to put cycling into the set. He thought that there were a lot of opportunities to make constructed cards by uh, using the cycling mechanic. And ultimately, it felt like it... it interacted pretty well with what the rest of the set was doing so i was happy to accommodate him i mean the one thing about cycling is there's really no set that you can't make cycling work in yeah i mean yeah cycling is a is a flavor neutral mechanic it doesn't really uh imply anything about the story um uh so it was it was definitely more there for uh for standard constructed reasons than it was for sort of the internally self-consistent limited reasons. But it's, yes, it's something that uh, is, is very easy to uh, make work in a set because it's a, it's a very solid mechanic. Okay. So this set was pretty full. Um, I do want to mention one other fact. So between minus one, minus one counters and exerting and brick counters and all sorts of things, uh, so Dave Humphreys, who uh, led the, the development of the set, um, decided to make punch-out cards, which is the first yeah. time Magic has done punch-out cards. Yeah, so the, they were like a card-shaped object with perforations in it, and so you could punch out various uh, little counters and things. So there were, there were minus one, minus one counters you could punch out. There were brick, brick counters. There was a little uh, rectangle that said exerted uh, so you could use these as play aids uh, while you were playing with the cards, and the players liked them. I think. No, I actually, I actually think that's. I mean, we we've gone back and and used them again because they're they're useful. And so, um, as a, someone looking for future designs, the punch out card really has has interesting potentials for for future possibilities. So yes, and anything that you can put into a booster pack is exciting to us because that's how we sell magic cards. <laughs> and like, wow, here's a different thing we can put into booster packs. That is exciting. That fires the imagination of uh, people like us. And, and also, it's it's pretty flexible. Like, there's a lot of things you can do. Yes, I, we had a we had a hackathon one time. We were looking at future things, and my team. One of the things we were looking at was like other components. And so we yeah. did a brainstorm on punch-out cards, and there's a lot of things you can do with punch-out cards, just because it's like, you can print whatever you want and punch it out. So it's... I'm glad we introduced it. I think that was a cool thing the set introduced. Um, yeah. Okay, so looking back, there is a lot... There's... 
cartouches and, and uh, brick counters and flip cards and aftermath and cycling and embalm and exert and deserts and zombies and lots of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think in retrospect there is too much going on? Uh, I think there is, or or at least I think that there is more going on than is necessary. Um, the set the set felt a little too complex to me, um, and also like. I wasn't especially happy with where we ended up with the aftermath, uh, frame design. So, Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't mean that as a knock against the designer who designed the frame. I don't have a better idea. I'm not like, if only we'd done it this way, I think there may not, just may not have been a great solution to aftermath. And I probably, you know, if I could go back in time, I probably would not have made the aftermath, uh, cards in the final version of the set. Yeah, I mean this. This set was a uh, the 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 very experienced drafters actually really liked this set just because some of the complexity gives you so much sort of things you can do with it when you're drafting. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's just it's a it's just because of some of the uh, the sort of speed issues. It um, some of the the things like you know large creatures with cycling and stuff were kind of forced out of. Uh, playability in draft often just because there were some decks that just kind of were so fast that they made it hard to for slow decks to compete yeah i know when uh, our devastation came out it helped it a little bit it helped slow it down a little bit because there were some more answers yeah. to stuff. no i my my impression was that the full block draft with our devastation devastation was very well regarded and that kind of course corrected this the speed problems to where mm-hmm. the the speed was at the right level again but since then, I feel like we've we've kind of learned that we need to to build in um, safety valves so that like if the if the format is faster or slower than than our internal testing suggests, then there are enough things to do. That's that's something that uh, that we have to focus on in the when we're refining the uh, design of sets for limited. So I'm I I can see my desk here. So we're I'm, I'm almost to work. So my final question to you, Ethan, is uh, looking back, what what is your big takeaway? Sort of like with some time looking, because this is one of your earlier sets, not your first set, but one of the earlier sets you worked on. What is what is your takeaway looking back on on Amonkhet? My my big takeaway actually is uh, has has little to do with like the mechanics of the set or or the complexity of the set and is more about uh remembering that every magic set is somebody's first magic set and Amonkhet block situated as it was right in the middle of this uh large story didn't feel like it stood on its own well enough it felt like it required too much context of knowing what had been happening in the story before this, uh, and too much of its appeal kind of rested on that knowledge. And so I think that it wasn't quite as uh, accessible to people who are coming into magic for the first time as I would have wanted it to be. Well, yeah, no, it's, it is hard, right? Any one set is somebody's first set and you have to sort of keep that in mind. Um, Yep. I, the thing I did love is 
we had wanted to do Egyptian top down, for, you know, Egyptian set forever. Like we had talked about doing Egyptian sets like back in the like late late nineties, like for a long, long time. Uh, and it was fun to finally do it. And like, there's a lot of just really cool, evocative things that I that I, I'm so happy we got to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think we really uh, nailed a lot of the Egyptian themes. I was very happy with the the creative dissonance of the the creepy story we were trying to tell there. I felt like it definitely felt like it succeeded on an artistic level in a way that really satisfied me. And the other thing I, I, I enjoyed was not only obviously we did a lot of Egyptian influences, but also we created a world that had its own sense to it. Like, like while clearly we were influenced by, by Egypt, no, no doubt, um, that the world of Amenket had, had a very distinctive like Amenket feel that wasn't just, it wasn't just like, oh, this is exactly like ancient Egypt. It was sort of, we made our own world and it, I liked all the the gods and the and the trials and how the the world had a very sort of living element to it that the gameplay did a really good job of demonstrating. Absolutely. Well, I've got to go now, Mark. I've got another meeting. Okay. Well, I'm I, I'm at my desk, so I guess we got we got to call this wrap. So thanks, Ethan. Thanks for being with us. I'm happy to be here. Uh, and so I'm at my desk. We all know what that means it means that instead of talking magic, it's time for me to be making magic. So I, I, I made it to work. So I'll see you guys. I'll see you next time, guys. Bye bye.